Okay. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, Naval War College, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We'll also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who can't join us today. So we ask you to be mindful of keeping your microphones muted to avoid disrupting the presentation, as well as keeping your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our guest presentation today, we'll have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, uh, just type it into the group chat so I can track the order that we come in. And then to the uh, greatest extent possible, I will have you in the audience directly ask your question to engage with our speaker. If you can't do that through your device for some reason, please just let me know in the chat and then I'll ask your question for you. So today we're excited to bring you the newest of our new cadre of Team Krulak non-resident fellows. We're joined by Dr. James Holmes, who I should mention is a new fellow but a Brewcast alumnus having joined us back in March for a panel event focusing on the South China Sea. He is a professor of strategy, the inaugural holder of the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy, and a two-time visiting professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. He's published over 25 book chapters and 350 scholarly essays, along with hundreds of opinion columns, think tank analyses, and other works. Dr. Holmes has been quoted or cited in outlets ranging from The Economist, uh, the Economist to Xinhua and appeared on such broadcast outlets as the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, National Public Radio, and the BBC. His most recent books are A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy and a second edition of Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. I should mention Red Star Over the Pacific was named to the Navy Professional Reading List as Advanced Reading and was also selected for the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Indo-Pacific Command Professional Reading List. So, sir, thank you for joining us again now in your new capacity as non-resident fellow, and I'll turn things over to you. Hi, uh, thanks, Ian. It's a, it's a privilege to be with all of you all. This, uh, this afternoon, let's, let's have a little fun. Let me, let me try to give you my take on Chinese sea power in 10 minutes. The Pentagon tells us that the Indo-Pacific is our priority theater and that China is the main pacing threat in that region. Competing effectively in that region means convincing friends and potential foes that we have the capability to do what we say we will and the willpower to do it, whether that's uh, keeping our alliance commitments to our friends or defeating potential antagonists in the Indo-Pacific. So to deter China and give heart to America's friends, we have to understand China's military strategy to prove that we can beat it. Which brings me to the meat of the talk. To help explain China's strategy this afternoon, I will invoke one strategic concept, three metaphors, and two old operational concepts made new. The strategic concept is active defense, and it comes from Mao Zedong, founding chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Active defense is nothing more than using offensive tactics and operations to weaken a stronger foe while you remain on the strategic defense. defense. You can gather your resources for battle in the interim, harness new resources, get the opponent to divide its forces or break up the enemy's, the enemy's alliances. Over time, if successful, the weak make themselves into the stronger contender, go on the strategic offensive and win. China's 2015 military strategy affirms that active defense remains the essence of Chinese communist strategic thought, not just relevant, but the essence dating all the way back to land warfare in the 1920s and 30s. Which leads me to the first metaphor, the rope-a-dope. It comes from Mao Zedong himself. Mao observed that a, that a weaker but crafty boxer can defeat a bigger, stronger opponent by conserving his energy in the early rounds while the opponent wastes his energy trying to land a knockout punch. So a planned retreat is good strategy at the outset of a bout. If lesser pugilists are patient while the strong exhaust themselves, the weak become the relatively strong by the later rounds. They outlast the strong or land a crushing counterpunch of their own against a depleted adversary. That's just what Muhammad Ali did to the stronger George Foreman during the famous Rumble in the Jungle in 1974, and it's what Mao envisioned the People's Liberation Army doing. Active defense is a rope-a-dope strategy. The second metaphor also comes from Mao, the hand. What does he mean by that? Mao noted that his Red Army could be stronger than the enemy at a particular place on the map at a particular time, even while it remained weaker on the whole than the adversary. So he taught commanders to seek out opportunities to encircle and annihilate isolated enemy forces. 
it was better to cut off one of the enemy's fingers entirely than to mash them all. Cut off your enemy's fingers one by one, and pretty soon it's hard for him to make a fist. This is what Chinese strategists today call systems destruction warfare. If China's enemies fight as a system, PLA commanders strike at whatever holds that system together and then overpower isolated units or formations one by one. So the PLA is trying to give us a no-win situation. Mass and space for combat and subject yourself to concentrated barrages of firepower. Or disperse in space and subject yourself to destruction bit by bit. This adds up to the third metaphor, one of my own coinage, the crumple zone. Think about what the crumple zone is. The crumple zone in your car is a sacrificial component designed to collapse in a controlled way upon impact. It absorbs the energy from, from a collision before it harms what you really care about, namely the people in the cabin. Now overlay that metaphor onto the map of the Western Pacific. China's crumple zone is oriented to blunt the impact from U.S. forces coming from the east to unite with forces already in the theater. China's active defenders do not kid themselves that they can block U.S. forces out of regional waters and skies altogether any more than car designers see the crumple zone as an unbendable barrier against shock. Instead, active defense is designed to raise the price of entry into the Western Pacific higher than any U.S. US president rather would pay, and thus keep America from fulfilling its alliance commitments. Failing that, it seeks to slow us down so that China can finish what it starts before we reach the scene of battle. Successful active defense would compel us to undo a done deal, dislodging the PLA from whatever it had seized in the meantime. And since tactical defense is the strongest form of warfare, military logic would be an ally for the PLA. So those are the, those are the three metaphors, the rope-a-dope, the hand losing its fingers, and the crumple zone. How will the PLA put active defense into practice, sucking the energy out of our cross-Pacific counteroffensive? As I contended at the outset, by making two old concepts new. The first one comes from Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan, the Fortress Fleet. What did he mean by that? A century ago, Mahan was deeply critical of operating fleets within range of shore fire support. Back then, the range of a gun was a few short miles. Fleets could accomplish little while remaining within reach of supporting coastal artillery. But does this critique hold up today? I don't think so. What if coastal artillery could strike effectively at moving fleets at sea scores or even hundreds or even thousands of miles offshore? That would let a fortress fleet roam across vast expanses while still enjoying shore fire support. Precision, long-range coastal artillery is precisely what the PLA has fielded with manned aviation and especially with its family of, of anti-ship crews and ballistic missiles. Coastal sites can reportedly strike more than 2,000 miles out to sea, out to Guam and pot potentially beyond. 2,000 miles is a heck of a lot of, of maneuvering space for the PLA Navy's surface battle fleet. Bottom line, ultra-long-range coastal artillery provides fire support to the fleet while weakening U.S. forces bound for the region. The other concept comes from the 19th century French Navy, the Je Nicole, or New School of Naval Warfare. This is nothing more than super-empowering submarines and small surface craft with heavy-hitting new weaponry to threaten capital ships. If all a coastal state cares about is denying a global navy access to its coastal waters, a fleet of small craft can do the trick. Back then, it was torpedo boats and torpedo-armed diesel submarines. Today, it's submarines and small craft sporting torpedoes, cruise missiles, and potentially other exotic armaments. Je Nicole craft fan out in the, in the crumple zone. Between them and the coastal artillery, they could give U.S. forces a bad day indeed. In fact, if the strategy works as planned, the PLA Navy battle fleet can remain in reserve until very late in the conflict, letting coastal artillery and small craft soften us up. So, so what? Three takeaways from all of this. One, this is a strategy that conforms to communist Chinese strategic traditions. Studying China's way of war is a must. Two, the PLA Navy battle fleet probably will not offer battle far out in the Pacific. Commanders will let coastal artillery and the Je Nicole craft do their work before they risk the fleet. And three, Active defense calls upon the PLA to break up enemy systems so the PLA can cut off our fingers one by one. So we must tend to the resiliency of our systems, whether it's a fleet, an aviation squadron, a brigade, or whatever. Mutual support is crucial. So there you have it. China's maritime strategy in one big idea, 
three metaphors and two concepts given new life by time and technology. Thanks for your, your attention, and I look forward to the important part of our time together, which is our uh, interchange of views. Thanks. All right, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Holmes. And uh, to the audience, I will, uh, again, reiterate, if you have a question, enter it into the chat and let me know, and then I'll start calling on you uh, to go through. Um, sort of to get things going here, I have a, a couple things from your, your takeaway there that struck me. So first is in sort of describing that, the, the various parts of that approach to warfare. I'm wondering um, how well postured are, are, are we, you know, us in the DOD, us as the Navy Marine Corps team, or the Joint Force, to countering, you know, one or all of those components. And I'm, I'm sort of thinking back to, uh, uh, you know, there was a recent article and some analysis on a war game that was run, I think it was last year, or the year before, where our concept went against their concept in a, in a digital battle, and we lost badly. And it seemed that some of the output of that game was to not so much flex to their concept, but to do more of what we do, but do it better. Um, so the, our, do we do we need to do it better, or do we need to do we need to adapt something to change our posture towards them? Are we are we changing our posture? And if not, what are some of the things that we need to start looking at um, here in the near future to counter those three things you mentioned? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. That's sort of where the where the rubber beats the road and all this stuff. I actually don't think we're postured well to do it right now. And I think that's and I think to to, to his credit, uh, General Berger, the commandant, the commandant has been probably the more, most forceful advocate of moving to some, something that give, that makes us more resilient, that gives us the ability to, which what, what you all in the, in the Marine Corps call stand in. We stand in forces, and then you have exterior forces that are doing other things up until they until they can get into the theater to to unite and and, and mount a supremacy or a superior of combat power where it matters and when it matters so i, I mean I, I think that's i think the key to doing the stand the stand-in thing is to do what we're doing do it do distributed operations uh you use the fleet in concert with uh, with bodies of marines or even army troops uh, on on pacific islands and so forth i so i I'm actually, I actually wish we were moving a little faster in that direction but i think i think the, the ideas are at, at least in place in the form of not only distributed maritime operations but also uh expeditionary advanced base operations and literal operations in a contested environment all, all things that have been really sort of at the forefront of uh of fleet design, I guess, for, for the last couple of years since uh, Secretary, or since, uh, since uh, CNO Gilday and, and, and especially uh, Commandant Berger came in. But yeah, so, so I guess I'm an advocate of, yes, I think we actually do need to change what we do. I, do, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that we're going get, to get rid of the battle fleet. I, th I think that if you look, if you look at the map, and if you look at the map of the Western Pacific, and if you think about operating along the first island chain, you would probably, you would probably see our essentially are using small craft, whether it's uh, submarines, whether it's uh, bodies of bodies of missile armed Marines on the islands and so forth. So it's sort of lighter forces to stand in while the heavier fleet operates behind the island chain and, and essentially can try to pl plug up whether whatever PLA forces might break through that line of scrimmage into the background. So, or the backfield rather so joint uh, joint sea power whether it's uh, the u.s navy's battle fleet whether it's the air force uh, pl playing back up the, the, in a sense those are the linebackers to, to help uh, firm up that line but yeah so it's it's it's, it's clearly quite a different approach from what we've done in the past okay thank you um i got a first question here in the chat here and it's from lieutenant colonel zapeda who's our deputy here at the kulak center sir did you want to ask your question directly yes uh I was just curious uh, about your views on investing uh, resources on a littoral fleet and maneuver capabilities. Uh, it seems to me that based on on your your perspective of the Chinese strategy, it would somewhat nullify or counter some of these efforts that are underway. And just wondering what your views and, and opinions are on this. Yeah, you know, it's a great, it's a great question, and I, as you can probably tell, I'm a big advocate of doing this. You know, sort of disaggregate, disaggregating the fleet into lots of lots of uh, lots of smaller, cheaper, heavy, but but still heavy hitting platforms. I mean, this is this is stuff. This is these are not new ideas. I mean, Wayne, Wayne Hughes has been pushing this idea in, in his uh, uh, his books on fleet tactics for many years, but. But yeah, I think that I think that's the way to go. If you're going to stand in, you you need to you need to not concentrate such a large percentage of, of your combat power in each major platform, whether it's a, a major amphibious ship in the case of you all, or a, a cruiser or a destroyer, or, or even or even an aircraft carrier. So, 
so yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the direction we need to go in. The, the more the more the better of these of these smaller smaller warships, whether it's uh, light amphibious warships, all, all the things we hear about on on a on a daily basis. I think that in in a, in a sense, it's a, it feels like technologically we're almost back in the in the interwar era. When if when you think about uh, military inter- innovation back back between the world wars, it felt like there was a lot of technologies that uh, that looked that looked interesting, but we didn't really know whether they were going to be game changing technologies, or as or as, as Colonel Corbett likes to call them, uh, in his in his broadcast that, that he did with you all some time back. He talks about he talks about sustaining innovations, which is basically figuring out how to do what you already do better. So it, was the aircraft carrier actually was it actually a new capability, or did it help the battleship fleet do 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 what it already did well better? It, it's it's and it, it it almost feels like the the Second World War was a field sort of a field trial to put those ideas to the test. It's kind of it's kind of hard to tell whether uh, it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell in peacetime even through even through. Uh, the large scale exercise all these maneuvers we're always doing hard to hard to tell whether those are actually going to be uh, what uh, what Corbett calls disruptive innovations that basically change the change the setting around you and allow and, and allow potentially a, a newcomer to to the field whether it's naval warfare or anything else actually actually outdo an established power so so this is what this is what uh, Corbett called the the military innovators dilemma and I think it feels like it feels like with uh, with unmanned technology artificial intelligence all of these things that we see sort of jesting in, in front of our eye in front of our eyes it feels like it feels like we're sort of trying to figure out sort of trying to figure out which, which kind of innovation we're talking about just kidding you know hopefully hopefully we Hopefully, we're changing the game because I think China has uh, changed the game around us with its anti-ship ballistic missiles and all, and all the other stuff that's come online over the last quarter century or thereabouts. Yeah, thanks. That was excellent. All right, great, sir. Thank you very much. Um, all right, next question I have from uh, it's just from Jack. Uh, Jack, are you able to ask your question directly? Okay, no, he can't. So I'll go ahead and, and get yeah, it out there. Dropped out, looks like. Yeah. yeah. So his question is How well is China assessed as being able to layer the various levels of forces like the small craft, long range, coastal missiles, cyber, et cetera, et cetera, you know, together? Whereas uh, at one time, China had problems getting pilots with enough training. Where are they now in terms of layering their, their force, cap- their, their people in that force with the capabilities that the force employs? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that, that assessment, as, as you well know, is a really hard thing to do in peacetime, especially when, when you're talking about the wetware. How you know how well or how well how well ooh, how well organized or how well trained is a foreign military force to actually uh, to, to to actually accomplish what it looks like it can do, looking at the looking at the numbers or the pictures on the paper of Jane's or whatever your favorite uh, uh, place to go for statistics on armaments is. Yeah, I mean, there, there's I mean, quite clearly China realizes it, it has a problem in this area. It's in recent years it's gone out of its way to reorganize the People's Liberation Army as a more joint force. I think, and I think that's a, this is probably where people like you. I mean, people. This is where people like you. Uh, probably are better suited than myself because you actually you're actually do, out there doing classified work in the region. You, you like you actually uh, hopefully see firsthand what the, what the PLA does, how good are they, and so, and so on and so forth. Because they're not going to disclose, they're obviously not going to disclose their shortcomings any more than they have to. And therefore, and therefore, I think it behooves people uh, people out of that, people out in the region to actually keep an eye on this and you know and try to and try to puzzle through. Trying to try to puzzle through exactly how good these these people are. It's kind of an interesting point. point. Ed, Edward Lutwak, the strategist at CSIS in Washington, uh, wrote a wonderful short book on sea power in the in the late Cold War. I think it was 1974. And one point one point he made it in in this sort of in passing was basically exactly what you asked. Exactly, I mean exactly how exactly how we can we from the outside tell how good a foreign armed force was? Of course, he was writing about the Soviet Navy at that point, but so the same would go for any any other potential adversary. He just basically pointed out, to a great extent, a foreign military force is a black box. We can see the outside. We can we can we can we can sort of infer how well how well it might might perform in, in actual in actual military operations. But but at the same time at the same time we just can't look inside to 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 get that clear an idea. So I think that's uh, sort of the pick and shovel work that we have to do on a daily basis to try to try to assess. How good, how good China is on a person-for-person basis, as well as uh, having having all these uh, impressive military systems that they parade through Beijing and, and, and cruise through regional waters and, and so forth. But yeah, they, they, but yeah, let's let's not make the let's not make the PLA uh, ten feet tall. They, they quite clearly have some have some problems as well. No recent combat experience, obviously, obviously is a uh, a downside as well for them. And uh, 
kind of like to jump off that just a little bit on uh, their, I, I guess, sort of their 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 levels of authority and their command and control structure. Because you know, I know one thing that in the the American military, you know, especially in in Marine Corps and some of the other services we talked about, you know, the mission command aspect, where like we, I tell you what you need to do, I trust you to go do it, especially if you're like over the horizon and I can't pull you back. There's a level of autonomy and ability to do that. And I'm wondering in if if there's any similar level given um, inside the PL and Navy, which would have to operate sort of in a more distributed environment, or whether there's maybe a, a, a dichotomy, because you look at, for example, some of the things that their their maritime militia seems able to do. It seems like, you know, those very low level tactical commanders have the authority to, you know, be bullies on the scene um, and uh, and not worry about the repercussions. But is there does that apply across the forces or is there maybe a a, a, a a distinction between different elements and sort of how far they're trusted to uh to carry their authority without having permission from their own hires if, yeah, that, if that makes sense yeah no it absolutely makes sense yeah, and i think you're right to distinguish between the maritime militia who are a bunch of cowboys as far as i can tell and and the, and the actual not just the military service but also the china the china coast guard as well you know it's a, it's, it's a great question and i think that i think that this would be my guess i think this is actually a an area of advantage for, for ourselves because like you like as you point out as you point out we grant we grant and i hope we keep, keep moving in the direction of granting more latitude for tactical level commanders to actually to actually innovate to uh, to, to, I mean, just basically go out and accomplish the mission using me using means and methods that they deem appropriate. And I, that's something that that's something that an authoritarian communist system like China is really can't do. Really can't do political political supervision supervision of operations and even tactics is. I mean, it's and I think we're we're, we're sort of determining exactly how far it's going to go. But I think I think that that uh, senior commanders in, in Beijing and places like that just can't let a, the the operator of a warship go out there and, and and sort of take that so take that sort of latitude to to conduct operations and tactics. That if if that's right, if the, if uh, if decisions have to come from from higher ups, obviously that that translates into a lag. It could actually translate into more timid operators and so forth. Stationing a political officer on board a warship and making that person equal in rank to the captain of that ship is, I mean, just think about what that would be, what that would be like having President Biden or Secretary Austin or somebody like that to have a have a voice in what you do on a daily basis. So I, I hope that so I hope that this will be an area of advantage for ourselves, and I hope that and I hope that we don't that we stop going down that uh, that road as as well. Just because modern technology, modern technology, as you all are well aware of, I mean, it lets you get lets you basically stoop on your on your subordinates. So we need to be so we need to maximize that advantage. We actually uh, I've actually been speculating that for quite some time. My, my friend Toshi Yoshihara and I uh, and co-author many years ago wrote a piece about uh, Chinese uh, ballistic missile submarine operations. Basically, basically comparing them to uh, to U.S. Uh, SSBN patterns, and wondering what and wondering whether they would actually follow that pattern, in which you basically turn a a ballistic missile submarine skipper loose, say, and say basically come back in seventy days after after going out and and basically losing yourself in in, in the ocean so that you can't be found. Would that would 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 Beijing actually allow that sort of latitude, or would it be more more prone to to say okay you. You're, we're going to have close political oversight. You're going to stay in particular grounds, probably in the South China Sea, yada yada yada. So, and, and I, I think we don't have a clear answer to that question yet. Uh, but I think that's that's sort of a good case study in the in the kind of things that you're talking about. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, so, I got a, a request from one of the audience members, and then I'll go into the the questions as they come in. So, the audience member was asking if you could just reiterate the first two of those three kind of anecdotes you mentioned at the beginning of the presentation. Oh, first two. Oh, three. Uh, good grief. Let me, let me call, let me call my, let me call my cheat sheet back up. <laughs> okay, I don't, without, without my paper brain, I have, I have a really hard time. Yes. And there we go. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have closed it out. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the, the big idea was the big idea, the big idea was active defense. 
And then I and then I went then I went into talking to, talking about the, the the metaphors of the hand the the, the rope and dope strategy in the in the hand. But basically, and by the way, if, if by the way, don't 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 believe me. Get out there, get, the, get out there online and actually and actually have a look at uh, at Mao's writings if you really want to get really want to get a, a a solid grasp on this kind of stuff. Because he, he was actually he was actually a very good communicator. He, uh, when he talks about when he talks about the the rope dope strategy, and, and by the way, rope dope is, is is actually the boxing term here in the here in the West, but it's exactly but it's exactly what uh, Mao is Mao is talking about. And he he would have uh, put that idea out there before uh, uh, before the rumble in the jungle in 1974, but that's exactly what all all he did to uh, uh, did to Foreman in order to prevail in that contest. And hang on just one second, and I'll all right, there we go. Open sesame. All right, there we go. Let's see. Okay, so uh, move on here. Oh yeah, the ropey. The ropey. I mean, it's. I mean, if you think about it, what what exactly is it? I mean, if you if you're Ali, everybody going in, everybody going into that fight in Zaire. I remember. I remember. I think I probably. I'm probably the oldest person in the room here. But I actually remember it when I was a little kid. But everybody going into this bout in Zaire, everything saying, "Oh, Foreman. Foreman's bigger. He's stronger. He's a great champion. Ali. He's smaller. He's lighter. He's he, he's not as rangy, and and so on and so forth." But that's what. But that's But that's. These are things that uh, Ali used to his advantage. He let Foreman keep him on the ropes in the early rounds. He let he let Foreman he let Foreman uh, take it take his take his take his punches at him so that he he was expending his energy the way the way Mouse said that it, that an overconfident uh, foreign stronger enemy force might do vis-a-vis the Red Army. So he basically essentially said he essentially says let them, let them do it in the early rounds. Ultimately, they will start wearing themselves out, and 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 if we can if we can uh, be sort of uh, self-restrained. Take our time, be, be patient, and so forth. Ultimately, we can spike in serving our energy. There's going to be a crossover point in combat power between the two contenders. We're going to we're going to end up as the stronger adversary. And guess what? In the later stages of of of, an, of, of a uh, military conflict, we're gonna we're gonna have the military advantage, and we're gonna be able to we're gonna actually be able to uh, go on a strategic counteroffensive and win ourselves, win in the Clausewitzian sense. So that's, that's basically what he's talking about when he, when he's when he's talking about active defense. The 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 one about the hand. And by the way, Mal, another reason he's an interesting guy is just because he knew how to co- communicate uh, complex strategic ideas to ordinary people, Chinese peasants, many of them illiterate back in the 1920s, all the way through the the end of the Chinese Civil War in the in the 1940s. The hand. He's basically he's basically saying if you want if you want to harm a stronger enemy force, start start cutting it down to size. Don't just try don't just try to to, to damage all of your enemy all of your enemy's forces. It's better to it's better to encircle and annihilate them one at a time, so that you basically take down your adversary by the death of a thousand cuts. Take take his take his fingers away one by one, and ultimately he's not going to be able to make a fist. So he's trying he's trying to to communicate that sort of idea to to more junior commanders. Yes, yes, the Red Army goes into this conflict from a position of weakness, but you know what? At the right place, at the right time, on the battlefield, we could actually, we could actually uh, make ourselves stronger than the opponent at that place and time, even though, even though we're weaker on the whole. And therefore, we can actually do that sort of, we can actually do that sort of uh, death of a thousand cuts, that, in, that incremental destruction of an enemy's combat power. Did, did, did that answer the question? The crumble, the crumble. Yeah. You want me to go through the crumple zone as well? Like I can do yeah. that as well. I, I think I think it was just the first two, um, oh, and okay. uh, yeah, she just she said it did. So so thank you for that. Uh, by the so way, the, 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 the crumple zone, the crumple zone. I, I, did, I did that. In, I think it appeared in 2000, early 2019. I actually wrote I actually wrote that up for the Naval Institute's proceedings uh, uh, based on a presentation I did for CNO Richardson and his executive panel in late 17. So so you can you can find that very easily. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, if I can find it, I might put it in the show notes for this uh, episode so other people can read it. Yeah, I should have sent it to you. I should have sent it to you. Okay. Um, all right. So, got some more questions here. I'm going to go a little bit out of order um, to folks who haven't asked a question yet. So, first, Eric Harris, are you able to ask your question directly? to go with no so i'll i'll yeah, get it out there like <laughs> yeah uh okay so his question is how will china deal with the ground threats such as littoral regiments will these be targets for their ballistic missiles 
or will they look to look for alternate means such as ground forces to neutralize these as a more cost efficient method? And I just realized it's my fault. He made a note that he could not ask it in question. And I, I just glossed over that. So that's my bad. Um, but. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's part of that's part of the logic underlying uh, stand in forces uh, and, and spreading uh, spreading out into more distributed forces. It's just that it's it, it tries to it tries to flip the cost curve against the Chinese. But this is a, this is actually an approach you don't hear you don't hear it specifically alluded to all that much on on our side on our side of the Pacific. But it, it goes back to an approach uh, pioneered by Andy Marshall at ONA in, in the 1970s and into the 1980s, the, the end game of the Cold War, called competitive strategies. And what it, the, the basic idea the basic idea is that we should we should try to steer a competition with, with a foreign with a foreign opponent in a direct in a direction. That's uh, well. First of all, that is actually cost competitive for us. Try to steer the competition into areas in which we can compete affordably, while 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 compelling the adversary to to compete at very high cost to to itself. So that that was the idea of essentially trying to to bankrupt the Soviet Union towards the end. So try to steer the competition in, into areas like that, and and thus cause the adversary to to expend its resources at, at an unsustainable pace. And also, the, the other part of it is just to get to know that adversary culturally and try to try to figure out what sort of strategic moves we can make that will really resonate with that adversary. Uh, we, we knew that we knew in the late, say, in the late Cold War that the Soviet Union was very defensive minded because of because of Russian history and so forth. And this, this is these are some of the insights that went into the maritime strategy of, of the 1980s. Uh, as, as far as targeting ballistic missile submarines and bastions adjoining the Soviet homeland and so so forth. So I, th I think we're actually trying to get that. In fact, we did a big conference about a decade ago and, and put out a book, put out a, a book and some of the writings about about this idea of renewing competitive strategies for the 21st century. So I think I, th I think that I think that sort of uh, thing has come back into vogue. If we can if we can if we can dare China to waste expensive ballistic missiles on small bodies of troops or small warships. At that, at that point, that's going to be hard for them to sustain. We don't, we don't. I think we just don't know enough about how much all these things cost. But you know what? A boy, an anti-ship ballistic missile or something like that is, is a pretty expensive capability to to, to pit against uh, a small body of Marines armed with armed with missile launchers sitting on an island. So, I think so. I think that uh, I, I think China, I think China will probably avoid try, or try to avoid uh, pitting pitting that sort of expensive platform against uh, inexpensive. Uh, Hostile capabilities, whether it's the United States or Japan, but uh, so it might so it, so it might end up might end up being cruise missiles. It might end up being uh, amphibious warfare and so forth. Those are the, those would seem like the like the lower cost options. I do think I do think for a geogra geography has really blessed us in this competition. However, I mean, I mean, uh, Moltke the Elder tells us that, that the the tactical de defense is the strongest form of warfare. So if we already own something, if you already ho hold the real estate. Somebody else tries to come and take it away. That's a very difficult thing for for a variety of reasons. So, I think that I think it, I hope that as long as we're savvy in our use of uh, sea power in conjunction with land power, I think I think we actually are in a pretty good place. So, as long as we play our cards well. Great, thank you. And I, you know that reminds me one of my sort of my favorite case studies to study these days is looking at the Guadalcanal campaign, where that was exactly what they were doing. Right, you know, you can't sink the island. So, what what can you do to? Uh, to hold it and project strength from where you're at. Um, okay, so I got next question we got from, uh, I'm gonna go to uh, read Emily's and we'll go back to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Zapata has got a second question and then we'll jump down to a uh, Major Wilson. So first from Emily Eckerman, she's asking, do you think China's aging population will economically slow them down and potentially have implications for their military capabilities? Uh, the answer is yes. I, I always paint a pretty dark picture. Most of my presentations, as you saw, are pitched down at the military strategic level or below. And I think that I think that's like I think I think the dark picture is the one we should paint down at that level. But when you get up to the grand strategic level, China's got a lot of problems. I think it's a, a lot of internal problems. Like uh, you, you alluded to the to uh, China's demographics. Uh, just just recent, just recently, China has finally uh, abolished the. Well, they went from a one-child rule a few years ago to a two-child rule, and now they're going to three-child three-child rule, I think. But at the same time, they're going to still have to put up with the all the all the ill effects of that of those decades of the one-child policy for a very long period of time. So, capping the population, the working-age population, imposing the benefit or the burden of social welfare spending and all that kind of stuff. These are all competing demands that China will have to uh, have to put up with. And it's not just, I mean, it's demographics, it's, uh, it, it, it's the economic growth, it's uh, the, the environment is a catastrophe in China, has been, has been for many decades. 
there's a lot of competing demands of, uh, as far as military spending and, and thus foreign adventurism for, for China. So the so it's so yeah, let's not let's not make China China too uh, too too big a too big a contender. However, I will I will say this: if if Xi Jinping and his lieutenants, if they look at if they know all this stuff, if if they're candid with themselves about these internal problems that that China may have, they might actually see a window of opportunity starting to get starting to close. And if they if that's if that's the case, they might they might conclude that it's now or never to try to take Taiwan, try to lock in their gains in the South China Sea or whatever to to, to basically to basically roll the dice, uh, and and hope that armed conflict will get China what it wants. So. Just just because China has internal problems that that will cap the means it has to put into military spending over the long haul doesn't mean that China is not dangerous today. And in fact, in effect, it could be more da more dangerous. But then think about think about that uh, passage from Clausewitz where he says sometimes sometimes it's a good idea for the weak to pick a, a fight with the strong. If you look at the trend lines and if the trend lines are going 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 the wrong way. You might you might want to act today rather than postpone your postpone your the effort till next year when you might not be in as good a place. So, again, China a, a weakening China could be a dangerous China as well. All right, thank you. Uh, going to uh, next, uh, Tank Girls of Pay. I have another question, sir. Did you want to ask it? Yes. Um... In, in your opinion, what is the most significant uh, power projection capability be beyond their long range precision fires from China? And uh, if if we deem uh, or can categorize something as a most probable course of action for power projection capabilities, uh, what would be what would that be, and what would be the U.S. best approach to prepare for that encounter? Are you power projection outside the Western Pacific? Yes, sir. Right. Uh, well, you know, as far as projecting, I would take it, tend to take a grand strategic look at it rather than look at it through the through the lens of necessarily military capability. If you, if, I mean, if you look at China's economic diplomacy in places like Latin America and Africa, or even or even in Europe, even in Europe to a certain extent, I mean that this this essentially. Getting, getting, getting these governments to to essentially uh, uh, pool their fortunes with China economically. I mean, it, as we all know, priority number one for any government, especially in, the, in a developing nation, is going to be development, ec economic development, and thus prosperity for, for for the people. If China, if China, if China can, if China can actually give those, give the uh, foreign societies, whether it's in the in the global south or Europe or wherever, if it can, if it can give the, if it if it can get them to bet, bet their economic fortunes uh, on on. Uh, economic uh, intercourse with China. At that at that point, at that point, uh, China has has amassed even potentially geopolitical leverage. In a, in a sense, they can say, "Well, would you would you rather have trade with China, or would you would you rather uh, cooperate with the United States on security matters and so forth?" But I keep I started dabbling in South America a, a, a little bit in the last few years. I have a lot of friends in the Chilean Navy, and they're always saying, "Man, China China is our biggest trading partner." We really going to jeopardize that for the sake of uh, security co cooperation with the United States. If, I mean, if, be if Beijing, if Beijing actually uh, chose to make uh, chose to make an issue out of some some controversy between China and the United States, that's a that's a lot of leverage. That's a lot of leverage for Beijing, threatening to withhold that sort of support. I mean, and it's a, there's a range of activities like uh, Chinese firms bidding to Chinese firms bidding to uh, to operate different 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 uh, utilities or whatnot in foreign countries. I mean, these two, these two uh, tend to tend to again bind the bind this, these societies together with China and give that and hand Beijing that lever. So I would tend to, so I would tend, I would tend to go towards the economic side as far as power projection outside of the Western Pacific. The military on the military stuff, I think that uh, China still. I mean, obviously, the obviously the home theater, the Western Pacific, is, is still the primary theater for China. And I think it, it seems like the expeditionary side probably goes to other to two other implements of power for for the time being. If China, if China manages to settle events in the Western Pacific to its south, to its satisfaction, then you might see the, the PLA take on a more expeditionary character in the in the coming years. Probably, probably in the Indian Ocean first, uh, but but uh, potentially even beyond that. All right. Thank you. All right. Next question we got from uh, Major Zach Wilson. He's asking. Other than reunification with Taiwan, how does active defense apply to Chinese goals for the offense? What are they looking to achieve, and what actions should we be willing to respond to with violence? 
Well, as far as the relationship between uh, between active defense and, and offense, I guess is what you're, what you're really asking. I, I think that's a, I think a, a really excellent active defense. I mean, I mean, think uh, think about it. And I don't think that they will they will ever get to this point. I don't. I'm not entirely sure that they ever think they will get to this point. But I mean, if think about it. Think about it. This anti-access network actually got. What if, what if it was able to actually. Uh, keep the United States out of the theater. I mean, you, you could actually accomplish what you wanted to, to do on the strategic defensive, using using Junicol craft, using shore-based missiles, using using all these things that, that go into anti-access. At that point, and again, this is an ideal case. I don't think that we'll ever get there. But but if that were the if that were the case, what would what would you do with the PLA Navy surface fleet? At that point, that could be that could become an expeditionary fleet for the most part. Go to, to again to, to to go out and do things forward and so on and so forth. So, uh, whether it's deploying to the Indian Ocean or, or even the Atlantic, China has has been nosing around it, uh, in 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 southern Africa looking for a naval base in the Atlantic. It's talked about the Azor Islands potentially being a base. I mean, there's so there there is at least some thinking about, about this sort of uh, more offensive posture. And by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting that in in the longer version of this presentation that I give, I actually go back and and, and quote my quote my hero Teddy Roosevelt. I did my first book on him many years ago. But he, in 1907, he went to Congress. I gave a pretty sophisticated, uh, a pretty sophisticated rundown rundown on the the relationship between shore-based defenses and also and also short-range uh, uh, naval platforms and so forth in the battle fleet. He essentially said, "Look, American coastlines, American harbors and coastlines need to defend themselves." How do they do that? They do it. They do it with mines. They do it with the uh, small destroyers. They do it with you know all these all these unicol type things. If we can if we can actually mount that buffer off our own coast and hold a, an adversary's fleet at bay, at that point he says the battle fleet, the U.S. battleship fleet, can become what he calls footloose. It can roam the high seas. It can it, it can interdict uh, hostile trade. It can protect the sea lanes. It can project power onto foreign shores and so forth. That's a, that idea of a footloose fleet is, I think, I think is really, it's not one that you'll hear. That's not a, not a term you'll hear the Chinese use, but I think that, but I think that's exactly what they, they would have in mind if anti-access works well enough for them. So, so a major share of that battle fleet could, could become a more expeditionary fleet and do the Rooseveltian thing. All right. Thank you. Next question from, let me see what we got here. Major John Behrman, he's our new, uh, he works here for the Center for Regional uh, Security Studies here at the Kulak Center. John, are you able to ask your question directly? Absolutely. Uh, sir, my question was, uh, does China's maritime strategy recognize any potential requirement to secure or at least contest uh, critical sea lines of communication in the event of conflict? Um, it seems like given their dependence on energy imports, many of which are Coming out of the Middle East, going through sea lines, going all the way, you know, across the Indian Ocean, and coming through choke points such as the Strait of Malacca, do they see that as being something that they may have to actually fight for in the event of conflict? Perhaps that's getting to your point about, you know, the actual PLA Navy fleet be, being able to be footloose to perform those types of tasks. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I mean, in fact, uh, back in the days of Hu Jintao, before he gave way to Xi Jinping, he, uh, Hu Jintao used to talk about his Malacca dilemma. They, just like you said, that's uh, that vital lifeline from the Middle East in particular. Now that China's a, a net a net consumer of uh, or a net importer of energy, obviously, obviously China really has to think about that. Think about those sea lanes. So, yeah, which is one reason I would say that uh, the the Indian Ocean is sort of the obvious next big thing for the PLA Navy as as Beijing becomes uh, more comfortable with the situation closer to home. It will be willing to detach, you know, secondary fleets and so forth. Is that sort of it might if you might see you might see a PLA Navy fleet at places like Wadar or places like uh, Hambantota, other places that uh, China has been nosing around uh, for, for economic access, for commercial port access. You could you could actually see China try to try to parlay that into, into naval access as well. It, it just makes sense. So as far as safeguarding China's sea lanes, absolutely. And of course, uh, China will have to contend not only with the United States, but especially with India. India's own backyard, if it, if it, start, if it starts to do that sort of thing. Where India will be the defend the home team, it will be on interior lines. It will be to the defender. Some of those, some of those, uh, some of those advantages that go to China as the home team in the in the in the Western Pacific will go to India. Will go to India and its friends and allies in the in the uh, in the Indian Ocean. So, be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens when China starts to go up against that logic that it is harnessed so well in the Western Pacific. But yeah, as far as, as far as the, oh, and by the way, I think I, like there was actually a, an offensive aspect to that as well. I would not expect to see China do what uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy did 
uh, 75, 75, 80 years ago, and not and not go against uh, U.S. lines of communication into the region. That's the the, the Japanese sub submarine fleet woefully underperformed, whereas of course our, our submarine fleet uh, performed extremely well, basically cutting the sinews that held together a maritime empire like like the Japan or like Imperial Japan together. I don't think I don't think the Chinese would make that uh, that same mistake and not target our combat logistics fleet and, and everything everything that we depend on to get to. Uh, to get uh, people and people and war material into the theater. So I think there's an offensive and a defensive aspect to that question, just as there's always been a naval warfare. Sorry, I'm switching back and forth between the chat here because we got another uh, question uh, popping up. So um, I think we got another one here from Jack, who uh, again, I'll ask this question for him here. So we, uh, he's asking, how many China? How many China? The, uh, let me get my tongue untied. How many China and their military work in the area of subactive conflict to counter U.S. interests in the areas of the of interest uh, to China specifically? How might the U.S. military best use those same, such as non-lethal capabilities, economics, political leverage, to counter those uh, those effects of China? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's sort of the big elephant in the room question. In fact, in fact, uh, just uh, I think it was just last last month. But in the end, we, we we took part we took part in the war game down at Indian Head, Maryland, at the at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, and it, and that was what it was all about. And it, it was it was specifically on gray zone, gray zone competition in the South China Sea. But I think the, I think the I think the I think the I think the this is a problem in, in more zones than that. So I think the, the findings out of that game, I hope I hope will help answer your question in the coming months. Basically, basically the, the game was about trying to trying to figure out how we can use technology to get more, basically to add rungs to our escalation ladder. So if you th if you think about what our options in the South China Sea when contending with the China Coast Guard, uh, the maritime militia backed up by the PLA Navy and, and shore-based arms of military might. I mean these. China has a lot of options vis-a-vis -vis the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, and other contenders in the region. Whereas the United States, I mean, what are our options when we when we get into one of the when we get into one of these uh, uh, confrontations in support of our friends and allies in the region? We can we can sort of uh, uh, do nothing, use force. Go back to the last question: use violence, or we can nuke them. I mean, isn't the, aren't those sort of, sort of sort of the three big options that the United States has? Whereas China has lots of different options. Uh, so it, as the as the local contender right on right on the scene in the South China Sea, so we were which we, we there were there was a there was an enormous amount of creative ideas about new technologies that we can that we can use short of the use of violence to to essentially either compel compel China to escalate uh, and potentially even escalate to the use of force and be seen as seen as the user use or the uh, as the regional bully using uh, using force for the first time or potentially de-escalate down and resume on normal interactions in the region. So uh, that, ab that ability to, 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 to es uh, incrementally counter-escalate against China, I, th I think, is a crucial one. But yeah, so there was a lot of exo exotic technologies, some, some really wild stuff. One of, the, one of the teams, we had three working groups, and they, 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 called their, they called their approach the pain in the ass fleet, which I thought was really awesome. They, they were you know, just lots of small craft, uh, Heavy Coast Guard, uh, U.S. Coast Guard involvement, and so forth. So we'll, we'll see what comes out of that. Apparently, apparently the the organizers have turned it. They're they are turning it over to industry and seeing what industry can supply us with to give us to give us more options. My uh, actually, uh, and, and I think this this is not directly on the question, but I gave a short talk to the to, I gave a short talk to to the war game as well. I basically said, look, China's always on the scene. You, if you want to be, if you want to compete with China in the South China Sea or anywhere else, anywhere else in the gray zone. You have to be on the scene. There seems to be this. There seems to be this assumption in the Department of Defense that uh, freedom of navigation operations are somehow a deterrent to uh, misbehavior in the gray in the gray zone by China. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Not at all. I think they're important from a legal standpoint and she should, should should keep going. But at the same time, what do they really demonstrate that would deter China from from doing what it wants to in in those regions? All we're doing is pulling up pulling up a ship and sailing through a disputed uh, expanse of water and going away. Not much to turn of impact there. So we have to figure out how to be there on the scene in order to compete. Otherwise, we know China is there all the time, 24-7-365 in superior force. So that's kind of that's kind of where the that's kind of where we are right right now trying to fix this uh, strategic problem. Yeah, and as you said that I remember the graph from the last time you were on the broadcast when Hunter Styers had his little diagram of, you know, what does the font ups do as it rolls on through there and then rolls on back out. Um, it was pretty, pretty stark. Oh, okay. 
there they are. Well, okay, bye. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like exactly how competitive is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Jack had a follow-up, um, and I'll, I'll try and cover down on some of it, but he was asking about that gray zone war game, um, if the results are available anywhere. And I, my understanding is this is still an iterative process and there's nothing yeah. available yet. Um, but as yeah, the, we at the Krulak Center, as well as Dr. Holmes and a bunch of other folks are all plugged into it. So as opportunity presents and as we're, uh, as the, the level of releasability allows it, um, we'll, we'll certainly share some of the outcomes from that uh, where possible. Okay, uh, coming up here on the uh, top of the hour and we're out of questions on the chat. So, sir, uh, happy to give you some last final comments and then we'll close it out. No, 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 no real, no real uh, closing comments. Except other than that, it's just, it's a real, it's a real pleasure to to uh, have joined the Krulak Center. I've been, I've been to, I had an experience as a midshipman in, back in the 1980s that I don't think you would ever get again. My, I was at, uh, I was in ROTC at Vanderbilt, and we, our unit was entirely dominated by Marines between between a, a very senior Marine colonel and also. And also a marine officer instructor, sort of the third in command, who, who was a huge personality. We sort of had a milk toast XO, Navy XO, and therefore I, I felt like I was raised by Marines. And also, and also just to hear all the stories about uh, Crew Lack and, and of course Chesty Puller and all the and all those great uh, figures from the past. So it's a really it's a real pleasure to 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 join you today and join you for the next couple of years. And I hope that we will uh, I hope that we will uh, uh, help advance our cause in the Western Pacific and elsewhere in the world. So, hey, thanks and thanks everybody for for coming out. It was it was a real pleasure. And by the way, I guess there is one there is one point. Drop me a line at any time. It's it's not only it's not only an obligation for myself uh, to to answer email with people such as yourselves, but it's actually a real pleasure, especially in the last couple of years with the <laughs> pandemic. I don't get out of Newport as nearly as much as I as I'd like to talk to to people out on the front lines. So, this that's a, that's a good second best. So. Please don't hesitate. Yeah, well, no, thank you very much for that. Um, and for anyone who wants to uh, start getting a hold of Dr. Holmes, feel free to contact myself um, and I can help arrange that. And yeah, you know, fingers crossed that we can actually get you down here in person this academic year, but we'll, we'll just kind of see how everything plays out. Yeah, I, I may be on sabbatical uh, for most of, uh, most of the spring and summer next year. So at that point, that would be a great time to, to come down. Yeah, it would. And we've just put aside a new cubicle in our spaces for our non-resident fellows. So. There you go. Come and uh, come and join the party here. Okay. Um, so thank you, sir, for your time today. Um, thank you to everyone in our audience for joining us. We will be back next week where we'll be introducing the last of our new non-resident fellows, Captain Walker Mills, United States Marine Corps. Uh, he'll be talking to us about our writing as a military professional, some of the lessons that he's learned. Anyone who's, who's even slightly familiar with Walker Mills knows he's a very prolific writer, very good one, and he's got a lot of good knowledge he can pass on to those who are either looking to enter into that world or have sort of dabbled in the waters, but want to get better. So uh, we'll be pushing out that, that invitation and registration here over the weekend. So again, thank you, sir. Thank you everybody and have a good Thanks. day.